It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode 12 of 20. The people behind me started screaming and I turned around and I just saw the antenna on the top of the North Tower shift a little bit to the left and then go straight down and disappear as Tower 1 collapsed. And I knew some of my very best friends were in that building. And I knew that in that moment they were dying. Tim Brown lost 93 of his friends on 9-11, including two of his best friends. He's an elite first responder who served in the FDMY for 20 years, was a member of Rescue 3, one of the five rescue companies that are basically the SEAL teams of the FDMY, and was a founding member of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Several miracles saved Tim's life on 9-11, and he believes that he was kept alive to honor the stories of all of the fallen heroes, which he'll do with us here. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to the story. Tim Brown, retired New York City fireman. I was a fireman for 20 years, from 1984 to 2004, and a survivor of 9-11. But I, I got into the fire department in 84. I was a South Bronx fireman, Hunts Point for about seven years in 73 engine, La Casa Caca. Yeah, okay. Yeah, which was a fun place to be, fun in quotes. You know, when when things were the wild, wild west. And I, I ran the soccer team for the fire department, so uh, two of the guys on the team with me were lieutenants in Rescue 3, so they uh, asked me if I would come to Rescue 3. and. They said, but you can't come from an engine, you have to go to a truck. So I went to Ladder 4 for a year and a half in Times Square, which was a completely different fire department. Um, the Manhattan Fire Department is much different than the ghetto fire departments where I learned. In fact, Dave Woolley, who was one of the murder victims on 9-11, was my captain in Ladder 4, and he, had, he saved my life in 1991 in a high-pressure steam leak in the sub-basement of a high-rise building. Um, because a high-pressure steam leak, you cannot see it, and it will basically cut your head off if you run into a, a high-pressure s- stream of it. And he knew that, and he gave me a, a wood hook to put out in front of me. There was a guy, a guy trapped, and being a very aggressive fireman, uh, 
I, I was like, I was not worried about steam, but he knew. Uh, and he put the hook in my hand and he said, keep this in front of you. If it disappears, stop. And the steam cut the hook right in half in front of me. And I stopped and uh, he saved my life. And, and in the end, I would have been the only one dead because the, the, the maintenance guy got out on his own. So I would have been the only dead guy. But so Captain Dave Woolley, uh, murdered on September 11th, saved my life in 1991. So I went from ladder four up to rescue three around 91. And uh, I was in three for about seven years. Uh, I had met my best friend, Terry Hatton, in 1991. And uh, Terry and I both lived on the east side of Manhattan. And we were together every day. Every day. We were talking about the fire department. We were both huge buffs. We were into everything that was happening. And I would walk around Manhattan with Terry. And he would point out different structural hazards that he, he in Manhattan like where they build um, an additional floor, a temporary housing on the top, a roof of a building, and all kinds of crazy stuff that happened. Um, and Terry and I were boys. We were both single. Uh, we hung out. We did dinner together. We drank together. Um, he and our other best friend, uh, Patty Brown, competed for who had the ho hotter supermodel girl. <laughs> you know, so they had, they had that friendly back and forth jabbing each other about that. And, uh, we used to go to a place around the corner from the firehouse called the whiskey, uh, it was, uh, on 46th street in the Paramount hotel. And, um, Terry Quinn was one of the part owners in that. And, and so we would go there and, you know, it's kind of where the fireman world was crossing with, the. Uh, television film modeling world right and terry was married to an actress at one point and patty domville yeah. yep. Yep. Sure. yep and um yeah so we used to hang out there they would they you know there would be a line all the way down the block uh but when we got off our our shift at the firehouse at 5 30 or so we would walk around the corner and walk right by everybody and walk in they'd have a table waiting for us because they always had they always had the fireman table there and uh, it turned, it, it's what turned my life into the television world because I met Tom Fontana in the whiskey. And the first night I met him, we, uh, we stayed there till they kicked us out around 4.30 and we were pissed drunk. And uh, Tom, Tom and I became great friends and, and Tom was a, is still a big television writer. So that got me into the television world um, back then in the 90s. And you know... Neil's life was good, man. I was a New York City fireman. We were, I was doing TV shows on the side. I was helping Tom write and create. I had that creative thing going on. Um, I had the two best guys in the world, Terry Hatton and Patty Brown, were my two best friends. Um, then we started losing people. Captain Drennan uh, was burned very badly. The two, two firemen were killed. Chris, and Chris Simon, Chris Simon, Jimmy Young, and Jimmy Young. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And and they were killed within basically 24 hours of the fire, both of them. And but the captain lived for 40 days. Yeah. 
and Patty Brown took care of him. They were very close. So Patty took care of him and the family, and me and Terry took care of Patty Brown because the only way he could do it is if we could help him and support him. And, the you know, the reality of the danger of the job was rearing its ugly head in, in my career. And I was extremely proud to be a part of that, but it, it's hard, man. Emotionally hard. And it makes you question the job. Well, yourself, not the job, but it makes you question yourself and the decisions you're making. And seeing the pain that um, Vina Drennan was going through and the, kid, little, the little kids running around and stuff was uh, uh, formidable emotionally. Um, so I left Ladder 4, I went to, uh, rescue, to, to OEM uh, because I had become friends with Mayor Giuliani uh, through Terry Hatton because Terry married Beth Patrone. Beth Patrone was, for decades, Rudy's executive assistant that did all his personal business for him. And, uh, and so they finally convinced me to go work for OEM, Mayor's Office of Emergency Management under Mayor Giuliani. So I took off the helmet. And I put on a tie and a mayor's office jacket, and I went to work five days a week. But we were field responders, so we would, at least I had that break from the office stuff. We would respond to the scene of major disasters and emergencies and things like that and represent the mayor. And when you're representing someone like Rudy Giuliani at the scene of some disaster, uh, it's incredible how people jump to and get the job done. So it was very effective under his leadership. We were very effective. Within, within that group, I got promoted to supervisor of field operations. We had about 15 cops and firemen who um, I supervised, I guess, or I worked with. And so that's where I was on the day of September 11, 2001. Seven World Trade Center was our office, 23rd floor. We had built our kind of state-of-the-art Star, Star Wars emergency operations center there. And that was my office. And I went in that morning, as I did most, almost all mornings, around 8 o'clock, 7.45, 8 o'clock. And I went to the third floor cafeteria, and I got my Cheerios, and um, I bought all the newspapers because we didn't have smartphones then. And I would just sit there alone in the cafeteria and read through all the newspapers just to see if there was anything that was affecting, you know, our, what we would be doing that day. I wanted to be up on current events in the city of New York. So I would have my Cheerios and read the newspapers. And then by the time nine o'clock rolled around, I felt like I was ready to go for the day. And at 8.46, the power went out in the building, which is very unusual for a modern high-rise building in New York City. And it kicked back on in about five seconds. So I knew we were on um, generator power. This building was a government building. There was a lot of government groups in this building, and so there were generators to keep the power on in case of something like this. So the power came back on. I knew something big happened, but I did not hear or see anything. The first indication, the second indication after the power was the people who were sitting at the glass that was facing the North Tower all at once jumped up 
and started running toward the exit and they were running by me panicking and screaming and I grabbed one lady by the shoulders and I kind of shook her back to reality so that she would pay attention to me and I said what happened and she said a plane hit the, the tower and I was like oh okay and immediately you think back to what our previous experience with something like this is or was. And, you know, your thought is, you know, some guy flying a small plane or a hel helicopter had a heart attack, went off course, slammed into the tower. And so that was kind of my prevailing knowledge at that time. I went up to the 23rd floor to ensure that my colleagues my peers were doing a full activation. I mean, there was no question, as an emergency management professional, all of us as professionals immediately knew that we would be doing a full activation. We trained and drilled and trained and drilled for things like this, and, and um, the full activations were a little, were not frequent, but we knew this situation called for that. So I went to our watch command, which is kind of our dispatcher listening post group. Mike Lee was the supervisor there, and I yelled to Mike, like, full activation? Like, question mark? With an exclamation point? Uh, and he looked back at me. He had two phones on his ears already, and he was holding one of them with his shoulder while he gave me the thumbs up that... He was, he understood that his group had to make 150 phone calls as fast as possible to get 150 different federal, state, local, and private sector partners into our EOC as fast as possible to support the mayor and um, the incident commander. I went over to our emergency operations center, which is like a big Star Wars command center with screens all over the walls, 150 computer stations in a kind of a big podium where we would manage all these different groups from and get all the resources we needed and Mike Berkowitz was the supervisor there and I yelled across the room to him full activation and he nodded his head and gave me the thumbs up he was already powering up all the screens and the computers and everything so that when people came in we'd be ready to go, hit the ground running. So exactly like we drilled and trained, we were doing it, we were good, we were professionals. My job now was to go to the scene of the emergency and assist the incident commander. Not to be the incident commander, but to help the incident commander. I got out of the VZ street, I went to my car, like an undercover Crown Vic police car kind of thing, and I, I took off my tie and my dress shirt and I put on my mayor's office raid jacket, said mayor's office on the front and back of it, and uh, my heavy leather boots, and they made us wear this stupid green helmet. And if, if you look in the French filmmaker's video in the North Tower lobby, you'll see me in that footage with the stupid green helmet on. We're trained as firefighters to always look at three sides of a building before you go into it, a building that's being compromised by fire, by collapse, whatever it is. And I wanted to take five seconds to do that on the morning of September 11th. So I went from the street level 
up an exterior staircase, concrete staircase, to the plaza level. It was one level up, and it was the tr- the plaza that was between the whole World Trade Center complex. I ran up that staircase, which later becomes known as the Survivor Stairs, which is in the 9-11 Museum, because it saved hundreds, if not thousands, of office workers who ran away. But it's what we do, right, Niels? We run up, we run toward police, fire, EMTs. We run toward it, and that's what I did. I got out on the plaza, not out on the plaza, because there was too much stuff crashing down to the ground. And I looked out over the plaza, and it was littered with debris, building parts, plane parts, that was on fire, and it was black smoke, white smoke, dust. And if you remember seeing the videos of all the papers from the offices that are like floating down, that's the scene that I saw. And I started to think in my mind that maybe my assumption of a small plane was inaccurate but I I didn't know for sure I went into the north tower at that level at that plaza level and in order to go down to the command post the fire command station which was in the lobby but that was at the street level so I had to go down one level inside the building there was an escalator and there were hundreds of office workers who were trying to escape the building, trying to evacuate. And so there were these hundreds of office workers trying to get on this escalator. It was like, it looked like a funnel. And I remember very clearly that what I expected to be happening was not happening. They were not pushing, screaming, climbing over each other, trampling each other, trying to get out. In fact, it was the opposite of that. From, for every person who was injured, obese, pregnant, disabled. There were like four or five office workers helping that person. And it wasn't firemen or cops or EMTs, right? It was regular people. And in that moment, I said to myself, no matter what happens today, we're going to be okay because that's the true spirit of humanity. 99% of humanity is good. If If we're walking in the street and someone trips and falls and we see it, what do we do? We, we, yeah, we reach our hand out. We help them. Everybody does that, right? And that's what I was seeing happening in front of me in this horrific situation. And it, it kind of boosted me up a little bit. More with Tim Brown after these messages from our sponsors. Now, let's return to New York City firefighter Tim Brown on being inside the North Tower. I got into the crowd, I got on the escalator, and as I'm going down the escalator, the lobby began to, re- to uh, reveal itself. And I could see hundreds of firefighters and police officers in the lobby awaiting their orders to go up in the stairwells. And I chuckled a little bit because I understood now why the cops called us bumblebees. Because there were hundreds of firemen in the lobby with the yellow stripes on their turnout coats. And when we get together like that, it looks like a hive. And 
That's exactly what I saw. So I kind of chuckled in this terrible situation. I chuckled because I got it. And I got to the bottom of the escalator and right in front of me was a bumblebee. And I looked up at his face and it was one of my very good friends, firefighter Chris Blackwell from Rescue 3. Now, Chris and I worked in the same firehouse at the same time. But we also worked on the same shift in the same firehouse, on the same company. He was like my blood brother. We did everything together. We slept, we uh, uh, ate, we showered next to each other, uh, and we went to horrific fires, building collapses, car accidents. And we did this for years and years, so Chris and I were very, very close. We, we loved, loved each other. And Chris was this incredible Bronx fireman, right? Ghetto Bronx fireman. Our coats weren't clean. They were all burned up. Our helmets were all burned up. In fact, they were burned up so bad that it would sit a little off on his head, like a little crooked on his head. And we didn't always shave like, you know, the Manhattan guys. You know, they're always clean cut. And wearing a tie like Terry Hatton would be. But we weren't those guys. We were the kind of the salty guys, like the Brooklyn guys. Yeah. You know? We get away with it a get, little yeah, more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We get away with Nobody cares as long as we put the fires out and, and save everybody. They don't bother us, you know? And Chris and I always greeted each other the same way. We came right, like about a foot away from each other. We both came to attention. He always had the unlit stub of a cigar hanging out of the right corner of his mouth. So we're at attention in front of each other. He reaches a big exaggerated arc with his right hand. He takes the cigar out of his mouth. And as soon as he does that, we both lean in and kiss each other on the lips. (laughs) And we're both not shaven and... You know, a lot of times you'd be all snotty and smoky and gross from the last three or four fires you went to, right? But we always did it. And we did it because we loved each other. But we also did it because it grossed out and freaked out all the other firemen. <laughs> and, and so we, we got a kick out of it, you know. But but Chris and I did that in the lobby of the North Tower on the morning of September 11th. And he said to me, after he put the cigar back in the corner of his mouth, he said, Timmy, this is really bad. I said, I know, Chris. Be careful. I love you. And he said, I love you too. And Niels, after he said that to me, He turned around and he went in the stairwell and he went up. He knew it. He said the words to me, but he still did it. One example, and I'm going to give a couple more. One example of what every firefighter and police officer, Port Authority police, NYPD police, they all knew it, Niels. They still Absolutely, no doubt in their mind, they knew. That is, I'll I'll say it now, I'm going to give a couple more examples, but that is an example of what the Bible says is the greatest love of all. 
is to give up your life for your neighbor. So, for, he, may, so he may live. So he may live. Yes, sir. And that's what Chris Blackwell made that decision in that minute. He decided that he would give his life to save strangers. That's heavy-duty courage. Yeah. The greatest example of love I've yes. ever seen in my life. Someone yelled my name across the top of the bumblebees. And I looked over, and it was my best friend, Captain Terrence S. Hatton, Terry Hatton. We nicknamed him uh, Doogie Hatton Boy Captain because he had the boy baby boy face. Terry was the captain of Rescue One, the elite of the Manhattan Fire Department, the varsity team, and Terry was the boss. He was put there intentionally by the leadership of the New York City Fire Department because they were grooming him to one day be the chief of the New York City Fire Department because Terry was that good. He was always six, seven steps ahead of everybody else in his mind. So they made him the captain of Rescue One because they trusted him, they believed in him, and they knew that rescue the challenges that Rescue One, the Manhattan Rescue faces are some of the most difficult. And they were confident with Terry at the helm there. And Terry was my best friend, and we spent every day together, working off-duty, whatever it was. Every day we either had breakfast or dinner, or we were out drinking beers. We were boys. And I ran over to my best friend, and he was six foot four, with his helmet and boots on. He was six seven, six eight, and he had the the mini Halligan in one hand, and he had the light in his other hand, and he put his arms out like his wingspan was huge. And I ran, I ran into his chest, and I wrapped my arms around his chest. And he wrapped his arms around my shoulders and around my back. So I, I kind of got lost in him. Got lost in his hug. Got lost in his love for me. And mine for him. And he squeezed me tight. And he kissed me on my right cheek. And he said in my ear, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And I blew him off because we had done so much together. We crawled through the rubble of the Oklahoma City bombing for seven nights together. We crawled through building collapses in New York City together. We were at the Atlanta Olympics when the bomb went off. We were there for that as part of the New York Task Force One. We had this fire when we were in Ladder 4 together that none of us had any business putting the fire out. Our, our legs were going through the floor. The floor was burned through. But people were, it was a daytime fire. People were jumping out the windows. It was game time. And I had my bunker pants on. I had the nozzle. We wound up with the nozzle with the line. And I put out four or five rooms on the top floor. And this was after we put out rooms on the floors below, but we kept going. And I ran out of air in my mask. And and so I bailed out. And, and Terry still had, he was my lieutenant, and he still had air. So he took the nozzle. And Terry finished off the last couple of rooms. Afterwards, I looked at him. 
because the fire was still coming up from below us. He had the three-quarter boots on. He didn't even have bunker pants on. So that guy was getting burned. And he, you know, he took the nozzle from me and he kept going. That's how good he was. Unbelievable. So when Terry said, I may never see you again, I didn't believe him. But after he said that to me, he turned around, he went in the stairwell with his men, and they went up. And I know from ear witnesses, firemen who lived, who heard Terry on the radio, I know that they made it up to the 83rd floor of the North Tower, which was the very bottom of the carnage. They were fighting the fire, they were saving people's lives when there was an interior collapse that trapped Rescue One. Now, Rescue One are the guys who are supposed to go rescue the firemen who are trapped, but now they're trapped themselves. And from what I was told by other firemen, Terry was screaming over the radio, the worst thing a fireman could ever say or hear. Mayday, 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 Rescue One is trapped. Mayday, mayday, mayday. 80s, 80s, mayday, 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 rescue one is trapped. I know one of his firemen, David Weiss, made it down to the lobby of the North Tower. He was missing his helmet. His head was all blood. So somehow he was able to extricate himself from the collapse up on the 83rd floor. And he made it down to the lobby and he was screaming and begging other firemen to go back up with him to help rescue Rescue One. And some firemen went back up with David. They all perished. But some firemen uh, obeyed the evacuation order and, and got out of the building. And they lived. And some of those guys told me the story of Captain Hatton and the men of Rescue One. So they, they wind up not being able to get extricated before the whole building comes down and, and kills them all. So back to my story, uh, I say goodbye to Terry, he goes in the stairwell, he goes up, a fireman comes running in the lobby of the North Tower yelling that another plane hit the South Tower and that's the first I knew of it. Of course, we all knew now that this was a terrorist attack and that we were at war. The leadership of the city of New York, the fire department, police, mayor's office we all huddled up in the north tower and decided how we would split our forces in, in two and it was decided that chief donald burns from the fire department and myself would go to the south tower and open up that command post chief burns and i started running from the north tower to the south tower together chief burns if you looked up the word Irish fire chief in the dictionary it would be his mug with his red rosy cheeks the lines of knowledge and experience of being a 41 year New York City firefighter and chief those long nights out in the cold cold winter nights in front of four buildings that are on fire with people jumping out the windows every crease on his face was earned 
And he was from the outer boroughs, so his New York accent was a little bit thicker than most. And only the right side of his mouth worked. The left side didn't move when he talked. He was my friend for a long, long time. And we're running to the South Tower. And I said to him, Chief, what do you need me to do? He said, Timmy, there's not much you and I can do. I've ordered a fifth alum, another 300 or so firemen. But it's going to take them a long time to get here because the first five alarms are going to the North Tower. We're going to have to wait. We're on our own. Do your best and be careful. And I saluted him. I said, yes, sir, chief. A woman came running to us screaming that there were people trapped in the elevator. And Chief Burns gives me the nod. Go with her. He went to the command post. I went with this lady. We came to the elevator lobby in the South Tower, and she took me right to one of these elevator cars. And the hoistway doors were open so you could see into the shaft, but the elevator car itself had not come down all the way. And so just at the top of the opening, about four inches or five inches, you could see into the elevator car, and you could see all the people's feet who were trapped and those were big elevator cars, so it was a, a lot of people were trapped in there. Yeah. And I remember seeing the men's, because these these were office people, right? So they had their suits on. And I remember seeing the men's dress shirt and jacket cuffs as they were reaching down and trying to pull the car down more, a few more inches so that people could get out of it. The opening was too small. What I did not know at that time, I learned later on, is that that elevator car had just free fallen 70 floors because the plane snapped the cable when it crashed into the building. So these people had just taken this 70 story free fall, but the elevator emergency brakes worked the way they were designed to and it stopped the car from crashing into the concrete pit. If that happened, it would have killed them all. But it worked the way it was supposed to. But now those brakes are locked onto that car and they're not letting go. So there's no way that human strength is going to overcome that. And in addition to all of this, they were screaming in pain because the elevator pit, the concrete elevator pit below them was full of jet fuel that was on fire and they were right above it. So they were getting burned and here I am the first kind of first responder kind of person there and I'm useless they, they that mayor's office on my jacket means nothing because what they need is a fireman a real fireman you have no tools I have nothing I don't even have my protective gear I don't even have any I don't even have protective gloves You know, I have nothing. I have this stupid mayor's office jacket on. And I felt completely inadequate and useless in this moment for these poor people. In my frustration, I just turned to my right to see if I could see anything to help. And my shoulder hits a person and I look over and it's a bumblebee. And I look up at his face and it's firefighter Michael Lynch from Ladder 4, who I had worked with in 1991. 
he was a young, he was a brand new fireman back then, and he was trained by Terry Hatton. You know, he was on his way to rescue one. He was on, he was a real, real bright spot in the fire department. And young Michael, firefighter Michael, put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed my right shoulder. And he said, Timmy, I got it. Three words, I got it. Those three words between firemen who had worked together and trained together mean more than three words, right? It means he has the training, the experience, the tools and equipment, because he brought his whole fire truck with him, full of tools and equipment. Plus, he's wearing all the bunker gear. He's got all his fireproof stuff on. And the intestinal fortitude to save the lives of those people, right? That's what, that's what those three words, I got it, meant. With that, over my radio, my OEM radio, urgent, 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 incoming plane, third plane, it's confirmed by the FBI, it's ours, impact imminent, take cover, get in the stairwells, urgent, 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 impact imminent. We thought that the third plane, Flight 93, was coming for the World Trade Center, confirmed by the FBI. You know, we were doing, our, everybody was doing their best. So I told firefighter Michael Lynch, you got this, I have to go. And I went to the command post, I found a landline that worked. I dialed zero for operator, she picked up right away, and I said, I'm with Mayor Giuliani in the World Trade Center, I need to speak to the White House immediately. And she tried to get me through, she couldn't get through. I said, okay, then the Pentagon. And she said, the Pentagon's under attack. And that was the first we knew of it, right? Because we have no situational awareness. We're under it. We're under it. We're in it. I finally talked to New York State Emergency Management Office, and they assured me that the fighter jets were coming for us as fast as they could to protect us overhead. It was so important because there's no way we could do our jobs and try and save people if planes kept crashing into us. And so for the first time, at least in the recent history of the New York City Fire Department, New York City Police Department, Port Authority Police Department, th that army combined is over 50,000 firefighters and police officers. Yeah. I mean, that's an army, man. Standing one of the biggest yeah. in the world. Yeah. yeah. And if we can't handle it with what we have, there's something We're big. in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. And we couldn't. And I, you know, I made that phone call. And, and, you know, Mayor Giuliani was also making the same phone call, but we were separate, separated. Uh, but we did we did request the fighter jets. We did request the help of the United States military for the first time, maybe the first time in the history of, the modern history of the city of New York, for sure. Um, now the lobby was filling up. This is the South Tower. The lobby is filling up with people who had come down 70, 80 floors in dark, smoky, wet stairwells, many of them injured. So imagine you're in a dark, smoky, wet stairwell around and around and around and around, single file, because the stairwell was too narrow and the firemen and police were coming up the other side. So you did the 70 floors down, 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 and you hit a door that says lobby on it, and you bust that door open and it's bright and light and dry and no smoke 
and there's cops and firemen there and you're injured and it took every ounce of everything you had just to make it down and you see the firemen and the cops what do you do you collapse right there they got me i made it so we had these people all over the lobby of the south tower and they were uh impeding our evacuation so chief burns said timmy go out there and get the paramedics and bring them back in here and start getting these people out of here and that was my job you know to help the chief with things like that so that's why i left the south tower i went out the south doors of the south tower onto liberty street and neil's the first thing i saw burned into my visual memory out of my left eye i can still see it was a dead fireman in the middle of liberty street and his buddies were yanking at his body to try and drag him out of danger he had just been crushed by a woman who had jumped from the upper floors of the south tower and she landed on him and killed Danny, him Danny Danny sir from 216 Danny, right. Danny. Yeah. and it was a shocking to say the least a shocking scene to see someone yelled my name and i looked over and it was firefighter mike lynch at his ladder truck ladder 4 and he was taking the uh the jaws of life off the truck and the motor for that is, is very heavy it's well, a, it's a 100, 200 pounds at least it's a two, two person job two, yeah absolutely and so he yelled to me to go help him take that motor off his truck and help him um but before i could get to him another fireman got there and and so he waved to me and i waved to him and it's the last time i saw my friend mike he took that jaws of life the spreaders that they use in car accidents and he was going to use that to increase the opening of the elevator and get those people out we later learned that uh he was successful partially and that he saved three women's lives out of that elevator uh who we showed them the his photo with his helmet on with the red 4 on it and they said they two of them said positively yes and one said i think that's him uh so we we know he saved lives before uh, he passed away so another uh, uh example of the firemen and policemen staying in there staying in the fight even at their own peril knowing the danger that they're putting themselves in for the goodness of saving people that they, they didn't know their names strangers names. strangers yeah. that strangers. now live yeah yeah um i found the paramedics on west street it was captain charlie wells from ems who was my good friend and i said we need to move you guys forward not not usually usually they have their triage outside in a safe place but because all the cops and firemen were going up the stairwell in both towers we needed to move the paramedics in closer and so they got their helmets and stuff and captain wells myself and two other paramedics grabbed the stretcher with all their i call it all their doctor stuff on it and the four of us in the stretcher went running to go back into the south tower in order not to be crushed by someone that's jumping or parts of the building falling off and crashing to the ground and killing us 
We were staying on the sidewalk on Liberty Street, very, very close to Three World Trade Center, which was the Marriott Hotel, which adjoined Two World Trade Center, the South Tower. And we're staying as close to the Marriott as we could. And we, the tower was set back on the sidewalk a little bit, so we came around the corner, and you had to kind of run a little deeper into the sidewalk to get into the South Tower. And we were about 20 feet from the door of the South Tower on the sidewalk when it collapsed. If we had crossed over that threshold into the South Tower, we never would have heard the, the loud crack that, that began the collapse. But we were outside, so we heard it. It was a piece of steel snapping up there in the 80s or something. And it was so loud and so obvious what was happen, happening that I didn't even look up because I knew what was happening. It was that loud. And it echoed through the canyons of lower Manhattan. Without even looking up, my training kicked in. I remembered what they taught me in Proby school 18 years earlier. Firemen can never outrun a collapse. It always catches you. It happens too fast. So if you're in a collapse, you have to seek immediate protection, immediate cover. And I knew that flashed right into my head at that moment. And I yelled to the paramedics, follow me. And we went right back in like maybe 10 steps, right back into the Marriott Hotel. I knew we had just passed a doorway into the Marriott Hotel. And I said, if I can get this uh, 40-story building, I don't know, um, over my head, maybe that will protect me and protect us. I went in that door, and that particular door was the Tall Ships Restaurant, which was the lobby restaurant of the Marriott Hotel. I got inside that restaurant, and it was as clear as this room. And with a snap of your finger, it went pitch black. The tower was collapsing on the Marriott, and now the Marriott was collapsing around us. I hit the ground on my knees on all fours, and I started crawling. And I know also because of my training that you, the, best, the safest part of a building in a building collapse is a vertical column. It's the strongest part of a building. In our experience in building collapses, especially in Rescue 3, we were the collapse unit for the city. Uh, we would oftentimes find people alive near a vertical column. And so I knew that if I had a vertical column and I could hold on to it, I might have a chance at living. And I crawled as fast as I could as the, tower, uh, as the Marriott collapsed around me. The dust was so thick that it was caked into your eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. I was trying to stick my mouth into my shirt to filter it as I was crawling. The noise was so loud that I compare it to sitting on the tarmac at JFK Airport surrounded by 747s full blast. I don't know how else to describe it. 
just concussively loud. Just, just, just it's just, unbelievable. Yeah. It, it's, I, I, when you thought it couldn't get louder, rattle, it would double. Your body. It would yeah. just double in, in how loud it was. I, I found, I found a vertical column, a very, very big, robust steel column. Now, I laugh at myself when I say I found it as though I did it. But there's no way I did it. It's I'm a faithful guy, and I know that that is where God led me. Because he didn't want to take me then. There's no other explanation. You couldn't see. I had no idea where I was. Yeah. You know, there's just no other way. There's I, no coincidences, Tim. It's, there's it's none. Not, yeah. It's it doesn't not. exist. And it was this column was so big that it was unusually big. And I learned later that that was the section of the Marriott that was destroyed in the 93 bombing. And when the iron workers rebuilt it, okay. as a middle finger to the terrorists, they used this really huge steel like, to say to them, you'll never knock this building down. And I wound up holding on to one of those pieces of steel that those iron workers, those great Americans. Oh God, yeah. Salt of the earth. Yeah. Uh, built, so they saved my life. I wrapped my arms around it. I held on as tight as I could. And the wind, as, as the Marriott was collapsing around me and, and other people, my legs got lifted in the air by the wind because all that air on those 40-something stories as they pancake, all that air has to go somewhere. And I happened to be in the path of that wind tunnel, I guess is a good way to describe it. And it actually lifted me off the ground, lifted my legs in the air. And I was holding on to this column with all my might. And I believe his might. Because there's no way that I could hold on to this column with one man's strength when the wind is 185 miles an hour trying to blow me out into the street. They did a scientific study of that spot where I was to try and figure out why we lived. This volcanologist is in one of those books right over there. Can't, can't be explained through science, right? This, no, he did. Oh, he did explain He scientifically it. proved because of the way a piece of glass was embedded in the steel. He okay. said the force that that had to take was 185 mile an hour wind. But how were you able to hold on? Well, that's what he couldn't explain. That's what that's, he couldn't explain. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you survived the a tornado in a sense. And yes. You, yes. Wow. With 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 my strength, and I'm not. I don't even lift weights. <laughs> just, you, you know, I'm just a regular. Something just a, was in you. Yeah. Regular strength yeah. guy. Yeah. And so that's the second example of uh, God's will to, to keep me alive. And after all that it stopped as fast as it started probably less than 30 seconds the whole thing and I was so grateful to be alive and I wanted to live still so I maybe went into this little um, fright flight mode I wanted to get the heck out of there and I went toward where the, the doors to Liberty Street were to get out of well, what's left of the building. Um, but now the build, it's all collapsed, so there's no doors. It's all debris and steel and junk. 
you, you still couldn't see. But I came, I ran into a truck, in the motor, a diesel truck, and the motor was running and the headlights were on. And I, I did not recognize it as a fire truck. I think if it was a fire truck, I would have recognized it as a fire truck. But I did not. And I, I thought, oh my God, it's a truck bomb. They drove a truck bomb into the building. Because I figured they're just coming at us and coming at us and coming at us, right? And so I turned around and I went deeper into the Tall Ships restaurant. And I came... Now, this is all crawling. I'm not, like, walking around. You can't see. You can't breathe. But I came to a metal roll-down gate that was down. And I was very determined to go through that gate and keep going away from the truck bomb, what I thought was a truck bomb. Which turns out I was wrong. It wasn't, but I didn't know. I put my fingers under this metal roll-down gate because I wanted to pick it up and keep going that way and I lifted it up a couple of inches and all these fingers came from the other side and we lifted it up together and there were about 15 people on the other side of this roll down gate who were trapped I had no idea I was just trying to go that way you know half firemen half civilians who these firemen were rescuing And it turns out this roll-down gate was the roll-down gate that when the restaurant closed, they closed the gate to the lobby of the Marriott Hotel. So this gate separated the restaurant from the lobby. Still within 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 the the hotel hotel itself. Yeah, both within the hotel. And I told the people on the other side of the gate, we have to keep going that way, we have to keep going that way. And they... The fireman yelled back at me, there is no that way. It's gone. The collapse had come down right behind them through the lobby. And now they were on a ledge. It it killed half the firemen and civilians they were with. Half the guy's company were just killed. And so now the survivors of the collapse, like me, I guess, but they were on a ledge that was a few feet wide to the right side was seven stories down and to the left side was the metal roll down gate that we had just lifted up so there was no choice about which way for us to go so we turned around I turned around again and we went back into the tall what was the tall ship's restaurant and one of the women who wound up out in front I think I waited for everybody to go by me and then I took up the rear and one of the women up front uh, saw a fireman coming from the outside with a really bright flashlight and she she could see his flashlight and he he saw us through the dust and smoke and he started yelling come to me come to me come this way come this way so we all like formed a chain and we went up and down over the rubble to the sky and and uh, he let us out and he got us out I wind up running north on West Street on the West Side Highway because my boss Calvin was trapped in the rubble and he was yelling for help and I got up to West and VC Street and they other firemen had already pulled Calvin out of the rubble he was from OEM yeah yeah Calvin from OEM he he was a civilian uh, we called him car three he was a number three guy he was my boss I was three Adam 
and he was my good friend. So he was already in the hands of the paramedics by the time I got up there. And uh, Car 2, who was a one-star NYPD chief working in OEM, named John Odermatt, another good friend of mine, uh, said to me, Timmy, they've got him. He's going to the hospital. You have to come with me. The mayor wants us to get with him. So John Odermatt and I started running north on West Broadway. Um, and somewhere in there, we lost each other. We were trying to catch up to the mayor. Uh, but the people behind me started screaming, and I turned around, and I just saw the antenna on the top of the North Tower shift a little bit to the left and then go straight down and disappear as Tower 1 collapsed. And I knew all those guys who I had seen in the lobby who went up those stairs, including some of my very best friends, were in that building. And I knew that in that moment they were dying. My best friend, Terry Hatton. My pal, Chris Blackwell. My other best friend, Patty Brown. So many people. So many good people. Good humans. And really, I mean, that's it. I ran north. You know, we got pummeled a little bit when the North Tower came down, but not enough to uh, say I was very injured or anything. I breathed a lot of dust. Um, and then in the next few days, you know, I just started hearing names. And every time I heard a name, my knees would buckle. And Tim, I think it was the first, uh, within the first 24 hours, there was initially a report of over 400 of our guys and yeah. many more police that they, in the end, up lost but uh there was i think upwards of over 500 responders right that were considered missing and assumed dead yeah and uh unfortunately it wasn't so much lower than that but at least it was a little less a little bit less yeah Yeah. and i and i feel um very uh blessed to sit here and talk with you about it i'm very grateful i love life i love being alive Um, I miss my friends every day. I miss my friends. I'm not, I'm not afraid of crying over that. I cry a lot. Um, but this hard, this story is hard to tell, but it's, it's more important than it is hard on me. It's more important to tell. Well, the history has to be told because if, if, if we don't have harrowing accounts like yours, then people will forget. Unfortunately, I think some of them have, but. I think the one way to strike someone's memory is to strike emotion, right? Yeah. They have to be able to emotionally attach themselves to the subject and uh, genuine, yeah. And how more powerful is a real story of survival? I mean, you you cheated death twice in a few minutes, and uh, you know, for myself, there's a lot of guilt because I was off duty driving mm-hmm. an oil truck, and I got there. You know, we commandeered a city bus, and we got over just to the Brooklyn Bridge as the second one went down. And my my feeling was that all of my friends are gone. Yeah. And I was late. I was late to the battle. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and for a long time, it was hard to just say, well, it was fate. You know, as you said, was God ready for us at that moment? No, he wasn't. 
But uh, that was a hard, I think, thing to digest. Niels, look where yeah. we're sitting now. We're sitting across from each other talking. And we're 20 years later in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, and we're remembering it. the heroes. On a beautiful day that was probably the same type yeah. sky, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, and you know, Tim, it's uh, what hurts is uh, the sense of gratefulness that we express. And, and we're, we're trying to pitch that saying there's a lot of people right now that aren't grateful. And you wonder why? How could you not be grateful being in America? Yeah. How could you not thank God for for this freedom that we have? And it, it's not a perfect country, right? But there right. isn't a perfect country, right? And I think if if we can have more people like yourself that are willing to to give the story and convey it, and then maybe we can try to recapture that feeling of nine twelve. Remember yeah. that feeling, right? Yeah. Everybody was unified. Every day, there were people, Manhattan people were, were out there with waving American yeah. flags. Yeah, and signs, yeah. hugging. Thank loving. you, we love you. Yeah, and uh, responders were were uh, held up to a higher level. Yeah. And now, now I think it's just, I don't know, that, that respect has kind of faded and trying to figure out a way to recapture it. And I'm not sure how we can yeah. do that. You know, you know who's helping us recapture it? Um, the Siller family. Oh God. Yeah. Frank yeah. is, uh, Frank and Mary and yeah. the, and the, and the, and the yeah. family. And, uh, and now, now, um, Steven Siller, who the foundation is named after, right? The hero fireman who ran through the Brooklyn battery tunnel and then was, uh, murdered on the yeah. other side. Yeah. Uh, but, but Steven's family now, um, is, uh, picking up, the flag, if you will, and yeah. um, his his children are following in uh, in you know the national security uh, footsteps, the protect the service footsteps for him. Yeah, uh, a lot of these young people in in our community, the the children of the fallen, uh, have chosen now similar paths, similar uh, uh, paths of service to their fellow humans. Yes. Whether it's uh, in the military, in the, in the intelligence community, in the national security, law enforcement community, um, or in the FDNY or NYPD. Well, 69 children of our brothers that perished mm -hmm. are now on the job, right? That's Sons incredible. and daughters. Yeah. Yeah. And then Fireman Asaro from Midtown, right? Yeah. From three, three kids, four. right? I think four. His four daughter, now. his daughter as well. Three wow. sons and a daughter. That's a tremendous testament to uh, to Carl. I saw Carl in the yeah. South Tower. I, I uh, yeah, you know, I knew Carl because we worked in the same firehouse, and I saw him at the command post. Um, uh, you know, before uh, before he left us, and uh, I want to I want to tell one story um, that's kind of beautiful. Um, I talked in my story about firefighter Michael Lynch who saved the three women from the elevator in the South Tower. Um, some bad rumors were going around after in the weeks after 9-11, and I wanted to make sure that Mike's widow, Denise, knew of his last moments. And so I got in my like undercover police car thing. I turned on the lights and sirens, and I went 100 miles an hour out to Long Island. And I sat in the living room with Denise Lynch. And I told her the story of her, hus her hero husband and that scene at the elevator in the South Tower. And I told her that when he said to me, Timmy, I got this, 
he may as well have had wings coming out of his back because he was the angel sent to save the lives of those people. And I told her, don't listen to anything else. I was with him. I know exactly where he was and what he was doing. And he was saving people's lives. And there were two little boys crawling around on the floor, under three years old. And I looked over at the boys and I said, Denise, one day when those boys are old enough and they want to know about their dad, here's all my information. She put that in a cardboard box with some other mementos and she put it away. And a year ago, I got a phone call from Michael Francis Lynch, Lynch Jr. Oh my God. Who was three. And he said, would you tell me about my dad? So I met him downtown at our favorite watering hole called O'Hara's. And we were immediately like peas and carrots, me and him. We, we just clicked right away. And he said to me, my whole life, men have, men have disappointed me. They've come in and out of my life. They've come to be with my mom and then they leave and they break my heart and they break my heart and they break my heart as a little boy growing up. And I said, Michael, I will never leave your side. Never, never, never. And I said, what do you want to do with your life? He said, I want to be an army ranger. He already had his bachelor's degree. Good, real good young guy. And I said, don't sign anything. I'm going to take you on a tour. And you're going to meet a whole bunch of people from the army, from the navy, from the intelligence community, from all different walks of life. Because I want you to know all these opportunities are your opportunities if you want them to be. And after a, a, a few months, and he, he met some very impressive people, I said, okay, Mike, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And I said, I thought that's probably what wow. you would come down with. Wow. So we, we connected him with, um, with a guy down in Virginia who is a former Navy SEAL who has a track record of uh, um, success with young men and getting them through, they call BUDS. Yes. Uh, and so Michael's been working with this guy for a while. And uh, just last, in fact, I think today, yeah, today's Mike's birthday. Young Mike's birthday. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And his uh, dad's looking down proud, I'm sure. He, oh, he's, yeah. I know he is. So, so, uh, so now it looks like he's moved back a little bit to the Army Ranger side again. He's still getting ready for special he's, forces. So he's yeah. going to do something special forces. So, wow. it's, it's, you know, you know, when I, said i am a faithful man and those two times in the collapse where i found the vertical column and then i was able to hold on to the vertical column in an 185 mile an hour wind there's no way that i could have done those two things without god's help and Michael Francis Lynch Jr. is one of the biggest reasons why I was able to hold on to that column and live so that one day I could tell him about his dad. Oh, there's no doubt. And one day I could there's mentor no him. I used to think there was coincidences. And my brother-in-law said it to me. My brother-in-law, Alex, is a retired court officer, a real good guy. He was there when everything was happening. And yeah. 
He says, you know what, Nels, there's no coincidences. He goes, it's, it's, it's God just steering us into each other's paths. Yeah. Sometimes we pass. We don't, we don't stop. Yeah. We don't collide. There's other times we collide. And it's all based on yeah. where he wants us on that given path and that given day. And I, I, as I get older and wiser, I don't question it anymore. Yeah. I just say, okay, God, where am I going now? And, right. and it's some interesting places. Right. You show, know? Yeah. show me what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, but I firmly believe that those of us who were spared that day, he, we weren't ready. He wasn't ready for us. Yeah. There's other things in mind. And you look at all the great things you've done and the people you've inspired and, and touched. And, and, you know, when he's ready, we'll, we'll be called. But yeah, not yet, you know. Right. I saw my 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 beautiful Irish mother-in-law. I was in the fight of my life with leukemia, yeah. And I was begging to die actually at that point. And I saw her, and she's smiling, and she used to call me her boyfriend because you know the Irish thing we like to talk. And uh, she said, "No, not yet, my boyfriend. He's not ready." And I was just, I wanted to go. I just, I wanted yeah. to just have no more pain. And and she said, "No, when he's ready, there's still things to do." And like I'm like. For a long time, I'm thinking, man, what, what were the things I had to do? But now I'm starting to like say, all right, I get it now. It took a long time, right? It, it but, does take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that awakening moment, right? That like, like, you know, you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking about you just at a young age were just inspired to be a fireman, like that spark went off and it just yeah. never put that fire, no pun intended, never went out. Yeah, right? That's, right. that's right. And I think that's what it is. Some people just fail to recognize those awakening moments in the in the world when God is speaking to them. Either they ignore it or they just I don't know, they discount it. But he's he's showing us signs all the time. I firmly believe it. And and the more the more you're open to it, the more obvious it becomes. Leading up to September eleventh, I was not in a good place. Um I had for the first time and only time ever in my life asked a girl to marry me. And she said no. And we stayed together in the months later after that. But it was like a roller coaster. It was up and down. And, and so I was, I felt like I was losing her. I knew I was losing her. And, um, and so I was heartbroken. And so that Friday, I was at work at Seven World Trade Center the Friday before the Tuesday. So it would have been September 7th, I think. And seven, six, whatever. Yeah, seven. So I, I got out of work at Seven World Trade Center. I was very, very lonely. And so I wanted to go out to the Hudson River. And they had tables out there. You could sit there and have a beer. Really beautiful. Watch the boats go by. And I just wanted to go out there and kind of be with God a little bit. And I got out there. I, I, I bought a beer, but I didn't even sit down at the table yet. And I, I put the, ta the beer on the table. And it was a warm day, but I started to shiver. And my body completely decompensated. So what that means is that every pore of your body opens up and the fluid just runs out of you. And you're soaked from your underwear to your socks to your T-shirt soaked but I was freezing cold and shaking and terrified and I didn't know what it was 
I was terrified. So much that I threw a 20 under the beer and I turned around and I walked because I didn't know what was happening to me. I was scared shit. And I walked four and a half miles home. And I made it home. I was okay. And then Tuesday, September 11th happens. And I totally forgot this story about the Friday before the Tuesday. For years, I forgot the story. One of the things I did after I retired and I was lost, I was lost for about two or three years. And one of the things I like to travel. So one of the things I tried to do was be a flight attendant for JetBlue because JetBlue hires firemen to be flight attendants. Their number one flight attendant was a retired New York City fireman. Oh, I didn't know. I never yeah. knew that. Well, yeah. Like if they find out you're a retired New York City fireman, they, they, they put you right on the top of the list yeah. and they hire you. So I, I did that and uh, I wound up not liking the job very much, but uh, on one of the flights, I was a, a, a cross country flight from LAX to JFK. Uh, I was in, I was a flight attendant in the back of the plane and it's, you know, five and a half hours or something. So, you know, do what you have to do. And then you, you're bored for three hours. You read or do whatever, hang out in the back. So one of the uh, extra pilots on those long flights, they bring an extra, extra pilot with them. And one of those extra pilots comes back just to change the scenery, whatever, talk to somebody else. And he sits down in the back with me. And we're small talk. And um, he's, uh, you know, former Air Force pilot and retired. And now he's flying for JetBlue. And he's like, what about you? I said, well, I'm a retired fireman. And as soon as you say that, they say, were you there? And that's where the conversation goes immediately. So I tell him my story, and then I tell him the story of the Friday before the Tuesday. And he just lets me go through the whole story, and he doesn't say a word. He just listens and nods. And when I finish telling him the story, he says, I want to show you something. And he reaches in his bag, and he pulls out a book that's got a leather cover with a zipper on it and the leather is worn, right? And he takes his right hand and he grabs a zipper and he unzips the book and he opens it up and it's all highlighted in yellow, blue, pink highlighter, like the whole thing. And he goes through the pages like this and he comes to a page. He goes, read this, read this, read this. And he hands it to me, and I read in this book exactly what happened to me on the Friday before the Tuesday, which I never knew. I was just telling an honest story of something that happened to me. And I read it in this well-worn, highlighted book that this Air Force guy carries around with him in his bag. And... I'm floored that it describes exactly what happened to me. And what is the book? The book is the Bible. And it says in the Bible, it talks about spiritual discernment. And when you are in a spiritually vulnerable, 
place. You are open to other dimensions around you. And what happened to me that night, I believe, is that I was feeling the evil starting to gather because of what was going to happen on Tuesday. I felt the evil. I could feel it. That's why I decompensated. That's why I was scared out of my mind, like evil, like I've never felt before in my life. And I hope I never feel it ever again. But I felt it, man. And it caused physical reaction in me. Um, so if th this is one of the reasons I become more and more faithful. Because... I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a crazy religion guy or anything like that. But I'll tell you what, that happened to me. And it was real. And then I read, however many years later, I read about it in the Bible. It's, it's real, man. The evil is real. God is real. And, and there, there is that battle always going on between good and evil. It's always, it's, it's, it's right around us all the time. Tim, thank you for sharing your powerful story. And I'm so proud to call you my FDMY brother. I know we share the love of the job in our brotherhood. Wishing you peace and love, my friend. And folks, as you heard, Tim is very fond of the Siller family and their Tunnel to Towers Foundation. It's a charity near and dear to his heart. Over the years, he's hosted fundraisers to benefit Tunnel to Towers. And it would mean a lot to him if you check them out. They provide mortgage-free homes to families who've lost loved ones to 9-11-related illnesses, to service in post-9-11-related wars, and to fallen first responders across the country. They also provide smart homes to those who've been catastrophically injured in the line of duty. You can be part of their mission to rescue the rescuers by becoming a Tunnel to Towers member for $11 a month at t2t.org. That's the letter T, number two, letter T.org. And folks, if you've enjoyed these stories, make sure to check out our website, 2420podcast.com, and consider signing up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page so that you'll receive notifications about the latest episodes and great written summaries of them as well. And to all of those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you, and please stay safe. And now, before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today. As Nils so powerfully says, I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.